This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. You've committed to years of hard work. Between your undergraduate degree and law school, you've made significant financial and personal investments in your future. You are dedicated and motivated. All that stands between you and your career as a lawyer is passing your Ontario licensing exams. Let Emond Exam Prep help you reach your goal. Emond Exam Prep courses and practice exams are specifically designed to help you succeed on your licensing exams. We offer live webinar and 24-7 online courses covering all of the substantive topics covered by the barrister and solicitor exams. Our instructors are well-respected senior lawyers and academics and leaders in their fields. Our practice exams are designed to mimic the Ontario licensing examinations and provide you with real-time, accurate preparation. Your success means everything to us. Learn more, visit us at emondexamprep.ca. For a limited time, get 10% off the purchase of any Emond Exam Prep product by entering the code LSS10% in the promo code box. That's LSS10PERCENT. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Shannon, and I am a 2L student at the University of Western Ontario. I am also a first time hoster, and I am So excited to be joined today by someone who not only shares a passion for cannabis law, but also happens to share the same job title of podcast host. Today, I'm going to be joined by Russell Bennett. We'll be discussing Russell's practice, the road to legalization, and the problems that are arising within the cannabis law sphere. Now, I came across Russell's podcast, Cannabis Law in Canada, as a first-year student. I had really felt a lot of internal pressure to decide on a practice area, uh, and, and spoiler alert, I still haven't. So I went around Googling things that interested me, followed by the word law. Now, fortunately, when I Googled cannabis law, his podcast showed up. I really suggest if you like this interview, and if you like Russell, go look him up and listen to Cannabis Law in Canada. Now, Russell's got not just this incredibly interesting, rich background with cannabis law, but he also has a really deep passion for cannabis law that I'm sure you will pick up on in this episode. He's also interviewed leading experts and names in the cannabis sphere. So if you have any interest at all in cannabis law, please look it up. It will be linked in the show notes below. Without further ado, hello, Russell. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, Shannon. It's fantastic to be with you today. Well, it's great. I'm really abusing this process because I am meeting one of my podcast idols right Whoa, now. Stunned, stunned. Come on. Idol's a little high praise. Well, I have to admit, I don't listen to all that many, which isn't great as a podcast host. <laughs> Diversification in podcasting is a good idea. Exactly. Maybe one day we'll we'll breach beyond the cannabis podcast sphere. Nah. There's so many cannabis podcasts. You got to just you dive into all of them, right? Exactly. So as I said in my introduction, Russell here has his own podcast. And I think that's a great place to start because I'd like to do a little throwback to what you've done with some of your hosts. 
to start off when Russell is interviewing one of his guests, he will ask them to tell him about their first experience with marijuana. So I'm going to turn the tables. Russell, can you tell me about your first experience with marijuana? Yes, absolutely. It's detailed in my first episode. Uh, I do talk about it there. So you want a, you want a fuller explanation, you can go there. Um, it's essentially high school. It's a high school story. High school was very uh, strict and straight for me. I was, um, I was in an all-boys school in Toronto called Crescent School. And we wore green and silver striped ties and green blazers and white shirts and very formal. And so uh, the thought of smoking cannabis or weed or, or pot, as we called it back then in the mid-80s, was, uh, was, was forget it. I, was no, I would never do that. I was a straight-A student and very proud of that. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, uh, I went to school one day to English class. I think it was grade 10. And Mr. Petto had invited, or I don't know how it was arranged, but there was a, a Toronto police officer who came in with a three-paneled display case. I'll never forget it. It was this giant display glass case with cases, three, like it just opened up and, and I was just in awe. I think all the all the boys in the in the class were in awe of what is happening. This is supposed to be English. We were doing Shakespearean sonnets and all of a sudden we've got heroin and cocaine and weed and just all the different ways you can consume it. I thought we're, we're going to learn how to how to consume drugs. This is fantastic. <laughs> you remember this is this is like Nancy Reagan era of just say no. Okay, so it's very serious. This was not a joke, but at the time it was very serious that all these things were forbidden and all these things were going to destroy your life. So it was a cautionary program by the Toronto police, but it backfired, of course, because they, you know you're going to tell teenage boys, especially, um, not to uh, to be curious. Well, listen, I was curious, so. After that event, uh, I wanted to try some weed. I just thought, well, what's all the fuss about? It, it seems like it's a plant. I'm, I wasn't really into needles, so I wasn't going to try some heroin right away. Yeah, that's kind of diving off the deep end right off the bat. Yeah, uh, I think, was there anybody in my class that did? I don't think anybody did heroin right away. I don't think anybody does heroin right away. I'm um, sure the school is thrilled to hear that now. I'm sure. They're not very glad to hear about my story. They're, they're very cautious about introducing me to their students. I, I'm not among the, the favorite alumnus, alumni, but nevertheless, uh, trying a little bit of weed when you're 15 is a good thing. Uh, now, this also goes counterculture to today's view. One of the main tenets of legalization was to uh, keep it out of the hands of youth, which is odd considering you're allowed to grow four plants of any size in your home, your dwelling unit, of which teenagers are going to be passing by frequently, I'm sure, and wanting to attempt to uh, help you grow. And so I don't really understand. There's a, there's a lot of ironies and uh, what do you call it? Ironies, yes, of, of, of legalization. Anyway, the long story short is I managed to get some weed in a little baggie from a friend. And a, another friend and I went to his house to roll our first joint ever. And it was just a horrendous experience trying to figure out how well, to Well, you wouldn't it. have had access to YouTube back then, which is oh, how man. I learned. 
Really? That's how you learned from a YouTube yeah, video? Yeah, I mean, I, I distinctly remember watching Seth Rogen teaching me how to roll a joint. No way. That's amazing. Yeah, it definitely made it a lot easier. That's that's astounding to me. Yeah, we didn't even have internet back then. We had we did we were just on the verge of getting fax machines into the into the into the universe. So we're I, like I, I'm a I'm a granddaddy of all this. I, I would have loved a YouTube video on my iPhone um, to show me how to roll. We didn't we didn't know what we were doing. I, my my buddy brought he bought the rolling papers and we laid it out on his his desk in his bedroom upstairs. And as we were rolling it out, the story goes. It's, it was just a weird uh, confluence of things because he was living with his grandmother at the time who was hard of hearing. And she and her her son, uh, my, my friend's dad, were watching the news. And as fate would have it, the news featured a story about Justice Ginberg, Ginsburg from the States who was, I think he was denied a Supreme Court appointment because he admitted to smoking weed in college, which is bizarre that he would get refused. Yes. Uh, so Ginsburg was actually a, a Reagan appointee. And during the hearings, he admitted that he had smoked cannabis, not just as a student, but uh, also while he was a professor at Harvard Law School. That's amazing. Good research. Well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. I try. We, we should mention, we don't mean Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No. <laughs> um, we are right. referring to, I think his name was Douglas Ginsburg. I cannot see RBG no. rolling up and having no. a toke. You never know. Maybe in her youth. I, I mean, but... maybe, but if, if she did, she certainly didn't admit to it at her confirmation hearing. <laughs> no. Well, uh, unfortunately, that, that the, the news story prompted questions from my friend's grandmother. And I think his dad started shouting, it's marijuana. It's weed. It, and, you know, I'm rolling, trying to roll the weed on, the t on my friend's desk. And I'm, I'm looking at him and we're freaking out. Both of us are like, what's going on? Does he know? Because we snuck up the stairs. So I was freaking out. So we, 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 you know, we quickly threw it all together. So we smoked it on uh, somebody's lawn. I think it was almost immediately I felt this sense of, oh, my God. And it was like you're in a bubble, but a friendly bubble. I probably had smoked too much. I don't know. It was just a, it was a really cool experience. I obviously was not turned off. I was turned on. It didn't make me obviously want to try cocaine or heroin or the, uh, the harder drugs that, that was professed for me to try uh, that, that it, they threatened that would happen. If you tried weed, oh, you're going you're gonna to become a heroin addict. I still would like to try heroin. I don't know. I, I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> Maybe one day, once my kids have grown up and out of the house. My wife and I will get You would need someone to take care of you. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that anything that you want to try to expand your consciousness is, is probably a good thing to learn a little bit more about what it's, what it's like to be human and how that integrates with our universe and our fellow humans and, and, and animals and plants on the planet. I mean, we're, we're in a very privileged place really in this space-time continuum, whatever you want to call it. So anyway, um, that was my first experience <laughs> smoking weed. And, um, and I'm, so, I'm really grateful for it. I think it's, it, it changed my life, basically, because as I moved through school and got older, 
I realized that it was illegal. I mean, I knew it was illegal back then, of course, but it, it didn't really dawn on me that I was a criminal, that, that smoking it or buying it would, would be a criminal activity and w warrant uh, a criminal record or going to jail, you know? And I, and I was really lucky. I was a white kid in, suburb in suburban Toronto who, you know, was fortunate enough not to get caught up with the law uh, like many, many people did. You know, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm in a very privileged position that way. Yeah, I think that raises a lot of really interesting points, uh, especially the space-time continuum one, but I'm, I'm probably just going to move past that one. <laughs> um, because you, you talk about not realizing you were a criminal. And I think that's something that probably a lot of people can understand and really identify with. Yeah. So in your interview with Alan Young, who has a lot of different hats, he was co-counsel for the Queen and Clay case. He is the founder of the Innocence Project, former criminal law professor at Osgood. He's sort of a, a constitutional king. And he had this really great tangent. I don't wanna I don't want to say tangent if there's negative connotations. <laughs> I, I mean it in the best possible way. He had this sort of tangent about how obviously the criminal law did not work to stop cannabis use, especially following the Ladane Commission in the 1970s when cannabis use really started to become more prolific in Canada. He had said that uh, during the Queen Clay case, he had thrown out a statistic just to show sort of the, the professionals using cannabis. Uh, he found an Osgood Law survey, I think from the late 70s, that said 75% of law students had smoked marijuana before, and of that 75%, 80% of them intended to continue to do so after they'd been called to the bar. It's a, it's a really interesting idea that we had this law for so long, uh, and clearly it didn't work for the just simple possession and simple use. You know, maybe more so for the trafficking, but for simple possession and cultivation and use, it really didn't make a difference the way the criminal law ought to. So now I want to turn it back to you. You are a self-proclaimed cannabis lawyer, and that sounds so cool, but I don't know what that means. What what does that mean? Actually, I have no idea either. I still don't. <laughs> I, I think um, I'm defining myself as a cannabis lawyer because it it's uh, important for me to identify with people who want to grow cannabis and uh, sell cannabis and process cannabis because I really believe in the cannabis plant. There's Maybe I was a cannabis plant in another lifetime. So to call myself a cannabis lawyer, there's, there's, there are many cannabis lawyers now in Canada and many of them have come from the corporate or the criminal uh, bars, because the corporate uh, once once we hit uh, 2016, where uh, companies were formed to grow medical cannabis, uh, we had we had the need for corporate lawyers to be able to form these companies and properly put them on the stock market and you know take them public and and and, and all the rest of that that goes along with large companies. And on the the criminal side. You know, uh, a lot of the criminal charges that were uh, under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act are not really happening that much under the uh, Cannabis Act. 
So they had to kind of morph into, I guess, cannabis lawyers uh, from the criminal side. You know, and I don't really like law, period. I don't like being a lawyer. I don't really enjoy the practice of law. I don't really enjoy lawyers. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm but kind of been pushed into this by my need to defend the plant. That was where it really started was like, and people who, who enjoy the plant, that's where it came from. So I'm not, I don't really come from the, I gotta, I gotta make some money from an M&A transaction or, you know, defending somebody. It's more like, uh, how can I get more cannabis grown or better weed, better quality weed out there, help growers, specifically the micro licensees. When I, when I decided to, to start the firm, which is just me, as I say the firm, it's hilarious. The, the idea was to create a full service firm, right? I had, I had the image in my mind of downtown cannabis law, you know, LLP, and I'd have probably a dozen lawyers in various disciplines from IP to corporate, uh, criminal, regulatory, litigation, you name it. Everything that could service the small to medium-sized business in the cannabis sector. So yeah, that, that's the idea. And I do have that, except I'm not downtown. I'm in my basement and uh, I don't have a lot of lawyers on the payroll. I work in, in conjunction with them as independent contract. And, and that's really working well for me. I really enjoy that because I don't have the incredible overhead of having to service you know, a dozen lawyers and, and support staff, everybody kind of does their own thing. And, and we come and go like when, when it's necessary, it's a very, it's a nice, has a nice flow to it. So that, that's a message to, to I guess, to, to law students is that this idea of going into a big firm is the traditional way, definitely. And if you can do it, great, but it's the big firm way. And that's not the only way to practice. Um, I am more inclined to be a, an entrepreneur I like entrepreneurial activities, so I am more inclined that way. Uh, many people may not be, so whatever, you know, you, have, you should do what, what, what suits your personality, I think. Now, in your practice, it seems like cannabis law, and, and especially you wear a lot of different hats. There's a lot of different practice areas and a lot of different moving parts within cannabis law. Now, if I'm someone who's interested in getting into cannabis law now, three years post-legalization, what, what do you foresee the big issues that maybe my generation of future lawyers will have to work on within the cannabis law practice area? So there's so many, as you say, there's so many facets of cannabis law. It really depends on what speaks to you in terms of um, the type of law that really interests you. Some people are really fascinated with corporate law documents. They love shareholders meetings. They love asset purchases and they just love it. And, and some people hate it. Some people love litigation. They love putting together factums and affidavits and they love uh, appearing in front of judges and saying how their client is, you know, right. And, and, and other people hate it. Some people love IP law like Elizabeth Dipchan, you know, and, and so um, what do you, what do you love? Really, what 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 attracts you? Is it is it environmental issues? Cannabis law really touches on everything. What what is what is cannabis law? Cannabis law really is just this general um, product now, a consumer packaged good, a CPG 
that uh, you you know uh, you can sell, you can grow, package, sell, uh, sell internationally. Uh, so you know wh what is it? Which part of the world do you really get hooked with? So for example, I have represented uh, a tenant in a landlord-tenant spat where the landlord was trying to kick out the tenant because he was growing his medical cannabis in the basement because he really needed it for his ailments. I also uh, acted for uh, a company that's listed on the stock on one of the stock exchanges to confirm with, with the Securities Commission that they were, in fact, doing something legal when they didn't have a license to do what they did because they were working with another company that did have a license. Well, how does that work? Well, I wrote an opinion on that. And then I, I've worked with a group of men who wanted to grow hemp. So I got them hemp licenses. Uh, I, I uh, help people get their retail licenses in, in Ontario. Um, I've helped media companies that want to be compliant with the promotion prohibitions. Um, I've helped, uh, oh my God, big case from last year, an unlicensed retailer who um, had his own view on how retail should work. And he didn't want to get a license, but he, and he alerted the authorities to that. He gave them notice. And uh, I thought that he would have uh, a perfect case for uh, a forfeiture, um, a right to forfeiture uh, uh, remedy. He didn't. The, the judge was against him. And, and because she was, I, I believe, biased against cannabis. She said so herself in our first meeting that it was like selling heroin. So I knew we were, we were in a losing position before we even started. But so the, all this to say is that there's so many ways you can make your way into the cannabis sector now. There's the big firm approach where you're doing mergers and acquisitions, if you like that kind of thing. And there's litigation, all kinds of litigation. I, I acted for a medical grower who had a spat with his HVAC installer that went on for quite a long, a long time. You know, there, there, there's, I, I've defended uh, a group of people that were selling at a farmer's market in a, an unauthorized vape lounge in uh, one of the, the nearby cities of, of, of Toronto. So there's all kinds of um, ways in. Uh, cannabis law is your oyster, let's put it that way. I'm just rambling now, you can stop me at any time. <laughs> no, 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 I, I would get the hook out if we needed to. I would just... I just end the call. Don't worry. It's, it's not rambling. It's great to hear because I think maybe it's reassuring for people who are just now looking into this to hear that there's still plenty of work to be done. And in that there's plenty of work to be done, it's important to address pardons because that is a huge implication of the legalization of marijuana. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think pardon is, is unfortunately a misnomer for what people really want. A pardon is now called uh, um, a record of suspension, but it's still a pardon. Pardon is a pardon. Anyway, it's, it just means that people who are convicted of a criminal offense uh, are no longer a danger to society, and so they can be pardoned for their, uh, their uh, convictions. Um, but really what we're talking about is not pardons. We're, we're actually talking about expungements. And that is more important. I mean, yes, a pardon, you can uh, have no fear that a landlord will find your criminal record. Really, you want an expungement because that clears it completely. There's nothing left. There's, it's wiped from all of the databases of the federal government and all police databases. So that's what we really want. 
So I'm going to start a, a website called Cannabis Pardons. Other people have done some great work on this already. One of the, the projects that has started in the last couple of years is called Cannabis Amnesty. And that's a, that's a great attempt to, uh, to get people pardons as well. And, and I think the initial ask was during, at legalization was to grant a blanket pardon for everybody. Everybody who had a criminal record that related to cannabis should be granted a pardon. Well, I'm going one step further, and I say that everybody who had a has a criminal record for cannabis offenses, be they simple possession or trafficking, cultivation, importing, exporting, any one of those offenses, should have an expungement, an automatic expungement. So you're not subjecting people who were disadvantaged by the law, there the majority of people who were um, saddled with criminal records were minorities, you know, indigenous people and people of color in Canada. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a really awful period in our history as Canadians. Especially when you look back to 1923, when marijuana cannabis was added to the schedule. Yes. Marijuana was not prominently used in Canada until I think the best estimate is 1965-ish, the 60s and 70s. The history of why we had the drug law in the first place goes back to 1908 when we had the first drug law to marginalize Chinese Canadians. And it was a really, really obvious attempt to marginalize Chinese Canadians. You can read about it in my book. It's very clear. Uh, I've devoted in this, uh, the third edition just came out, a brand new chapter, chapter one. We took the whole history of the cannabis prohibition and we threw it into chapter one. So it's its own chapter. And uh, I'm very proud of it. People should know, people need to know the history behind this. And it started with Mackenzie King's racism against Chinese people. And unfortunately, that's just the way it was. Our prime minister was racist against Chinese people. I'll say it again, because I can't believe that that's how we got our drug law. He went back to parliament to enact the Opium Act. He was the deputy minister of labor at the time in 1907. He was handing out reparations from the riot. And in 1908, we got the Opium Act. And it was just one law and a series of other laws where Chinese uh, citizens couldn't vote, they, they couldn't hold property, and then they were um, subject to now they can't enjoy opium. Well, why not? What's wrong with enjoying opium at, a, at the end of a long, hard day? They built the railroad, for God's sakes. Let them have opium. So, uh, and yeah, okay, it's addictive and all the rest of it's terrible, but you don't need to put them in jail for it. Or what they were trying to do was kick them out of the country. So... The, the law itself was founded in racism. And 1923 turned around. And of course, the, the schedule is amended by the addition of cannabis in 1923. So that's where we got our, our cannabis prohibition from one sentence that you can read in Hansard. It says, the Minister of Health, Henri Bellon, he says, there is a new drug in the schedule. That's it. There's no, there's no like, nobody says, so what, what's the new drug, Henri? Nope, no, no, nobody says that. Nobody asks that. Nobody says, do we need it? What, uh, what, why? It was just thrown in there and passed. No, nothing. Oh, cannabis. It wasn't until like, I think 14 years later that we got our first offense. So imagine today, today we go in front of the house, you say, okay, fellow uh, members of parliament, I want you to vote 
and approve of this new drug we're going to add to the schedule. It's, it's a real menace to our society. Okay, it passes. And there's nothing. There's no no cannabis in can't. There's nothing. 14 years later, what what is this? There was a question in the house. What is this thing? And that, you know, they said, well, you know, nobody really objects to the use of it. Oh, really? Well, then what do we have a law for? So come back to the present day to talk about the pardon issue that you raised up. I, I wanted to circle back to that. It's it's based in racism and the enforcement of it was racist as well. Disproportionately racist against people of color and indigenous people. I could not agree more. I think that's so important to be addressing. Even if you go through the website that Bill C-93 has put forward, there's quotes even from Mary Liz Power and Bill Blair, I believe, on the site uh, for the Canadian Parole Board. It seems like when we were going to legalize, people were more cognizant of that. I found a quote from Bill Blair, so that the Minister of Border Security and organized crime reduction at the time. Uh, And he was the former police chief of the Toronto Police Services until 2015. And he had this quote that really just made me go, "You, you get it. And it was, the disparity and the disproportionality of the enforcement of these laws, meaning cannabis possession charges, and the impact it has on minority communities, Aboriginal communities, and those in our most vulnerable neighborhoods was the reason why we should be legalizing cannabis possession. And you know, this article that I found goes on to say that studies have, quote unquote, suggested, n- no, studies show that Indigenous, Black, and Asian Canadians are overrepresented in prisons for drug, drug possessions and arrests, but the use of cannabis between Caucasian and everybody else is still the same. And that's unfortunately disgusting for us. And that is the burden that we have for all of these offenses. Now, the the offense for cannabis under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act is no longer present. Cannabis was removed from the act, obviously, on October 17th, 2018, and was put into its own special act, the Cannabis Act, right? That's, that's the act that I wrote the book on. And it is required reading for everybody in this country. It's a terrible piece of legislation. It, it basically is the rebranding of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act with more offenses and steeper penalties and, uh, and also throws in the provisions from the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act for good measure for the promotion and, pro- and uh, advertising prohibitions. It is a piece of Frankenstein legislation that uh, really was totally not creative and did not take into account the $6 billion industry that was already underway for decades. And it's absolutely horrible. I'm on a, it sounds like I'm on, a, I'm on a soapbox right now, but I think it's really horrible <laughs> that the government did not acknowledge the, the industry that was already present. <coughs> the growers that were growing, the networks, calling them criminals. And the hypocrisy now that we have former chief of polices who are turned into members of parliament, that have turned into uh, uh, directors and officers of cannabis companies, uh, both on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Ontario Provincial Police, 
and and turn around and threw many people into jail, severed many families, hurt many citizens, saddled them with criminal records, and now expects them to line up and get go to Pardons Canada uh, and and uh, go to the parole board and say, I, now I want my pardon, please. Oh, and thanks for not charging me the 400 bucks that it costs. That's really, that's big of you. No, no. That act that they that they passed, the Bill C-93, does not acknowledge the damage that was done in this country by the 95 years of prohibition and does not acknowledge the disproportionate and racist impact that the law had on our society. And I, I like the soapbox comment because I think that is... It's true. It's it's so true. And we need to be more cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of systemic factors at play. But just to simply waive the $630 application fee is not enough. Um, because there are also these ancillary costs to produce records if they are located in a different province. There are a lot of other systemic factors working against people. And if you look at the numbers of how many pardons have actually gone through obviously covid has slowed things down but but obviously something's not working here 500 less than 500 to date since the passing of the act i think i saw as of march 2021 it was 395 successful pardons yes there's more now there's more it's been 487 or something like that since uh yeah, there's a CBC news item on, on it. You can oh, see. well, never mind then. Everything's fine. It, yeah, yeah, but less less than 500. And 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 there and this, the the number was oh well, we, there's at least 10,000 people with records from for simple possession. So at least just get rid of those, right? But why can't the government just look on the computer, go you know in this in the search bar, go cannabis, and then you get all the all the records and you go Control A. And then just hit delete. Boom. Done. Right? Oh, no. We need administration. We need to have people look at the, at the, at the applications. It's a four-stage process. So, you know, while I'm going to create this Cannabis Pardons site to help people do it themselves, it's a DIY site to do it themselves because the government site has not really yielded much success, Right? And Cannabis Amnesty is doing their own special thing. They're going to have, um, uh, I think in the fall of next year, they're going to have uh, a week of like recruiting um, lots of people to help people get pardons. And this is great too, great effort. But if you just want to do it whenever you want to do it, you should be able to do it yourself, right? So that's why I want to create this site. But really, what we should have is complete expungements. So I've started a petition a petition that will grant expungements for anybody who has a criminal record from the possession, cultivation, trafficking, importing, and exporting cannabis under the Controlled Drugs and Substance Act. And no fee, no administration, just get it done. They're doing it in the states. Check out, there's a number of states that are already doing it as part of their legalization. And that's an acknowledgement that the law should never have existed and it should never have existed. And that's something that the government of Canada has not yet done. Justin Trudeau, during his campaign, campaigned on the platform of legalizing, right? When he became the prime minister, he issued a press release, put it in the book, and it said, we have failed. The drug war has failed. We have uh, not been successful. 
and our approach has been wrong. They acknowledge this fact, but they, in the same breath, they don't say, well, but the law should never have existed. Well, why not? Why not go that one step further and just say, look, we made a mistake 95 years ago, and we shouldn't have had the Opium Act. We should never have continued on it, on a criminal justice path for this particular issue. This should have been a health issue at best, but it's definitely not a criminal issue. The criminal justice system should not be interfering in people's personal preferences uh, for what they choose to smoke, eat, put on their bodies, whatever. It's their own choice. So that acknowledgement has not yet been official. And it's unfortunate. The government is scared. They're scared for what reason? I don't understand. Maybe they can step it up a little. Maybe now's the time to step it up, especially because the three-year review has begun. And this is a very important part of the three-year review of the Cannabis Act. It's, it's in the legislation itself that in the, in the first three years, after the first three years, they have a complete review of what needs to be changed. So this would be a big issue for a three-year review. Uh, we've known since the Ladane Commission as of 1973, we've known the prohibition of cannabis is rooted in racism, but also the fact that a lot of the scientific evidence wasn't present and available to have prohibited it in the first place. And the Ladane Commission even recommended in those 1973 publications the, the legalization of marijuana. It seems like cannabis in general has been peppered with wins from the get-go, and yet it still took so long for us to actually get to yeah, this I, point. No, but I, I totally agree with you. In 1973, we knew we should have changed the law. And uh, well, when I did my documentary, I got to interview two of the Ladane commissioners. And um, one of them said that, uh, and you can see the document, it's online, it's called Stone. It's on YouTube. I just put it up there for anybody to see it. And uh, one of the commissioners says, oh, well, um, uh, there was a, uh, an election that year. It was Marie-André Bertrand. She says there was an election that year, so uh, the Ladane Commission basically got swept under the table and it was ignored. And they had spent, the commissioners had spent four years studying cannabis across the country. Imagine this. They interviewed thousands of people. They wrote four books. And the final book, the final report in 1973 came out. And guess what we have today? We have, the, we have today the kind of recommendations that they had back in 1973. So we are, uh, we're slow movers. We're the first mover of the G20 nations to legalize, but we are slow in terms of our own personal history. And it's because uh, politicians, um, you know, they don't want to not get reelected. So they do whatever they think they have to do to get reelected instead of doing the right thing. And so, uh, fortunately, Mr. Trudeau Jr. has done the right thing uh, by legalizing, but uh, the cannabis file has sorely been put on the back burner uh, ever since. I remember watching a brief interview with the Prime Minister um, on, uh, on the anniversary of legalization on this, this third year. Uh, third year or second year? I think it was, it was recently. And he didn't even use the word cannabis. He didn't even talk about it. He just said, oh, it was kind of, we just did, we did that. that and nobody's really opposing that anymore. It's not really an issue. So 
it, but unfortunately, it is an issue. There's a lot of issues still available to be resolved. And I hope that uh, they open their minds to it this, this session in Parliament. And hopefully with new budding legal minds following in your footsteps, maybe current students and future practitioners can really help make a difference moving forward. It's probably reassuring for people who think they might be late getting into this industry. You're not late. You're right on time. Jump in. The water's warm. There's lots to do. <laughs> the bong water's warm. But that's don't do right. that. I hear that's not. <laughs> now, if there's one thing I've gotten from your podcast and from speaking with you today, it's just how really important it is to have passion in what you're doing. And I wonder, with all of your, your cannabis experience and also sort of your trajectory from law school to the entertainment industry, back into being a lawyer, is there anything you would like to leave law students or future practitioners with moving forward? whether related to cannabis or otherwise. I do. I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts and only a couple thoughts um, that would may be helpful. So uh, why do you want to be a lawyer? Why do you really want to be a lawyer? What does a lawyer mean to you? What is it? Think about your, your strong reason why you're doing this, why you're dedicating your three years of your life to getting this degree that you can't even turn into a, a, a job until you get licensed. Another two years after that, I mean, it's a long time to do something and to be dedicated to the pursuit of it and not really know why. So if you know why, it's because you want to uh, make a lot of money as a corporate M&A lawyer. Well, good. Do it. If you want to change the world, good. Do it. The problem with law today is that there are almost 60,000 lawyers in Ontario. That's a lot of lawyers. Think about that for a second. See, almost 60,000 lawyers and, and, and 10,000 paralegals. And paralegals do a lot of what lawyers can do now. So why and what are you doing? And it's hard because you're at the beginning of your life. You don't really know what you like and what you don't like. So here's what you have to do, at least in my opinion is get exposed to a lot of different things so that you have at least a way to filter out the stuff you don't want to do. Because if you took a job in a corporate firm, even as a student doing something corporate, and you do it, and you're like, oh, this sucks. I hate this. At least you know, okay, we're going to check that off. And, and if you do something, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. It's still not enough. To be a good lawyer you've got to be passionate about it. You've got to put your heart and soul in it. You've got to be able to wake up at 2.30 in the morning, and like I did this morning, and there's a client who I've got to get to today. And man, I, I just there was one extra thing I needed to put in her affidavit. And so I, I emailed my co-counsel and I'm like, you know, we got, what do you think about this? If you're not that passionate about what you're doing, you're, uh, you're, you're a robot and you're just going through the motions. And that's not what it means to be human. You're not a robot. You have to, you have to, to and, and not, look, not every day is gonna be a passionate day. There's a lot of drudgery. But with so many lawyers out there in the marketplace, how do you distinguish yourself from all the other lawyers, all the other corporate lawyers, all the other litigators, all the other IP lawyers, blah, blah, blah. It's hard to get an articling position 
It's really hard. It's hard to work in a law firm. Think about entrepreneurism. Think about ways in which maybe if you don't practice law, what if there's a, a related business idea? What if there's something that could help people? And really, that's where it comes down to. Are you in it to help people? Probably, yes. Everybody's nodding their head. Yeah, of course I'm in it to help people. So good. How are you going to help people? Figure that out and you'll be a great lawyer. That's that's all I've got, really. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's really wonderful because it feels like something I personally even need to hear. At every stage in law school, you're kind of thinking, what am I doing when I get out of this? And listening to your podcast in general, the first light bulb moment for me that there was this way to make a passion work with the law and marry the two things together. And that's why I think your experience and what's led you up to here is just so interesting and why I was so interested in talking to you today. I'm so thrilled that you found my podcast. You actually listened to it. It's like, I, I don't know, you know, I, I put it out there because it's something I love, but I'm just so uh, thrilled and grateful for your your ears and your mind on this and 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 for asking me to to be here today thank you so much it's been a total pleasure thank you now with that i think we're at the end of our time for today which i'm actually heartbroken about i've really enjoyed getting to speak to you and getting to know more about the nitty-gritties of this profession oh my pleasure thank thank you for asking me and I hope I, I haven't blown it as host because I think I've just gotten so caught up in listening to you that I've forgotten <laughs> to speak myself. Now, friends, if you're interested in hearing anything more about Russell Bennett and his work, I will be linking his website, a link to his textbook, and to his podcast in the show notes below. I want to give just a huge thank you to Russell Bennett for giving me his story and his time and really helping me personally get to know more about an, an industry that I'm so passionate and curious about. That's all for this episode. Until next time. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.